Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. I am Matt Carpenter, and I am joined today by Dr. Harry Poe. Dr. Poe is the Charles Coulson Professor of Faith and Culture at Union University, and he is a scholar in several areas, but I'm especially excited today to talk about a man who is often neglected or mistreated in the literary world, one that almost all of you probably had to read a little bit in high school with some negative explanation from a teacher, that is Edgar Allan Poe. So, Dr. Poe, thank you for joining us, and thank you for for coming to talk about someone who is a great figure, but often misunderstood. So, thank you for being here today. Thank you. I appreciate being asked. So, to to begin with, uh, some people will notice your last name, Uh, That could elicit a question or two about your relationship, your familial relationship with Edgar Allan Poe. So so tell us, uh, how are you connected with him? He was my great-great-grandfather's cousin. Okay. Now, originally, he's from Virginia. Is that correct? Yes, he was raised in Virginia, spent 20 years of his life in Richmond, and the Edgar Allan Poe Museum is in Richmond. It's the largest collection of items related to Poe, includes uh, his personal property, um, first editions, um, letters and manuscripts, locks of his hair, hmm. piece of his coffin. <laughs> All of it's there in Richmond. And, 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 and they say that we're not one as Protestants who, who, who like, you know, slivers of things like that. We, we, we certainly do while just not, not attributing the miraculous to them <laughs> though. Yeah. So <clears throat> now you've written a book on Edgar Allan Poe, which I very much enjoyed called Evermore. And of course you, you've also written other articles about him as well. So in addition to the family connection. What is it that drew you to to study more of him? I'm, I, because I know from your background that uh, he is not your, what, what you focused on in your academic, uh, initial academic pursuits. No, no, he's not. And um, I always thought he was interesting. I, I think I read all of his um, works when I was in the eighth grade. So I've always thought he was interesting. Um, But in 1999, I was asked to join the board of the Poe Museum in Richmond, and they soon after that elected me the president. So for 10 years, I served as the president of the uh, Poe Museum. And during that time, um, in my academic work, um, I was um, heavily involved and continue to be in uh, science and religion in that in that conversation, and a colleague and I, a chemistry colleague, and I've done four books on science and faith. So it was a, a, a huge interest of mine when I realized that Poe's um, 1848 essay, Eureka, it's 150 pages, is actually a discussion of 
the relationship between the physical and the spiritual universe. And um, that got me interested in Poe. What exactly was he doing? And I realized that that Poe was on a spiritual journey himself. He was asking some deep questions, trying to understand, is there a God? And if there is a God, what kind of God exists? And um, uh, that's... Um, that culminated um, in the, 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 the book Eureka, in which he proposed the Big Bang Theory. Um, he proposed what we now call chaos theory. He proposed the basic elements of what we call the theory of relativity. He proposed the basic uh, understanding of uh, the, the atom, its subatomic parts, the idea of attraction and repulsion, um, and on and on and on. Some of the, the, the major scientific ideas of the 20th century, Poe proposed in 1848, and for his proposal, he was called mad. They thought he was insane. And uh, literary critics up into the mid-1950s we're still calling his ideas um, an indication that he must have been insane because right. those ideas were not generally accepted until after 1950. Hmm. So um, it was fascinating to me then from my perspective as a, um, a theologian, but also as a pastor, um, that Poe was grappling with personal questions and so for my interest in apologetics and evangelism, um, it helped me think through what are the questions that non-believers are asking. Uh, we often, as theologians and pastors, present to the world what we think they should be asking, but that's not necessarily the deep question. So Poe was very helpful. And um, someone that I have worked on um, uh, professionally as a, as a theologian is C.S. Lewis. And what uh, struck me was that Lewis and Poe were asking many of the same questions hmm. um, in their uh, lead up to faith, um, almost tracking one another. Wow. Oh, that that makes me happy on one hand, but also, of course, very sad on the other, just because of how things ended for Poe, which we will get to, uh, you know, in a little bit. But <clears throat> when I was taught and I had to read some of his stories in ninth grade and in 11th grade, mm -hmm. and, and I received the same type of teaching that, that I think is pretty standard also is similar to that in college. People have a negative view of him. For one, you, the things that people read are usually uh, his, you know, his kind of, uh, I'd say horror. It's not horror, you know, like modern horror is today, but, but, but it certainly, it, it, it speaks to something deeper than just mystery so, so before I get myself tangled up in the description here, a lot of people have a generally negative view of him. Mm -hmm. They think of him as either someone who is just attracted to 
uh, melancholy or someone who had uh, a generally depressed personality, someone who's an alcoholic. I've heard it said that he was uh, a drug addict. Where did all of that come from as, you know, uh, how did that, how did he gain that reputation? Poe's biggest mistake in life was dying before his uh, biggest uh, enemy. Uh, Rufus Griswold hated Poe, was terribly jealous of him. Um, Rufus Griswold is not exactly a, a name that's on everyone's lips. He's largely forgotten. He did not achieve great literary success. But the one thing he did was write Poe's obituary. And then he edited Poe's works and wrote the standard biography of Poe. And in so doing, Griswold created the myth of Edgar Allan Poe as this madman howling at the moon um, in a drug-crazed stupor staggering through the streets of, uh, of New York. And um, uh, Poe po, uh, was alcoholic, um, but if you're um, alcoholic, you can't write. I mean, if you're in a drunken state, you can't write. And so, uh, for the most part, Poe controlled his, um, his bouts. Um, if he did get drunk, he passed out. He could not, he, he had a, um, an extreme sensitivity to alcohol so that he couldn't go on long bouts um, James Russell Lowell said that um, so much as a thimble full of alcohol would render Poe completely insensible and <laughs> unable to function. And so, um, so none of his stories were written under the influence of alcohol. He, had, uh, he lived in several different cities, uh, Richmond, uh, Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. Uh, he was born in Boston. He didn't live there very long. But um, he had doctors in the major cities where he lived, Richmond, uh, Philadelphia, and New York. And uh, all of them uh, testified that Poe did not take drugs, that he wasn't um, uh, in, in any way involved in that uh, uh, lifestyle. But he, but he was alcoholic. And alcoholism has run in my family for 250 years that we can document. Mm. I'm assuming it goes back long before that. So there's a predisposition to it. So there was that. But it was largely um, Griswold. And Griswold is the one who introduced um, the idea of reading an author's work biographically so that the... Um, uh, so that the story is really about the author. Now, that's a kind of literary criticism that C.S. Lewis despised. Right. Um, the, the effort to read into the story the author uh, when it's a work of fiction. And uh, he wrote a, Lewis wrote a, um, uh, it was involved in a uh, literary controversy that was published as The Personal Heresy. In, in which uh, Lewis said this this kind of um, scholarship is not scholarship and has no legitimacy to it. But but mm. Griswold is one who really popularized it with his treatment of Poe. 
that is regrettable. Uh, taking a very Freudian view before Freud popularized it and, and yeah. took it beyond, you know, j- just literature. But and the interesting thing about Poe is his, in terms of his personality, um, uh, Poe uh, didn't care for horror stories. Uh, hmm. Horror stories um, for him that were just full of gratuitous violence, not much plot, not much, not much meaning. They would uh, build and build with intensity and then blood and gore all over the street and heads rolling down the road and that sort of thing. And he just, he just didn't care for it, but it was very popular in England and the United States in the early 1800s. <clears throat> Louisa May Alcott, who wrote Little Women, wrote horror stories under an assumed name huh. because they sold. The magazines would just devour these kinds of stories. And so That's interesting. Poe, who was trying to earn his living as a writer, uh, realized he had to write some of those. And what distinguishes Poe from the scores and scores of other writers and their ghastly horror stories is that Poe's are very well done. And um, we associate Poe with horror stories because the um, high school textbooks that um, anthologize all the uh, uh, the literature of the United States are are their primary function is to make money, and right. um, and uh, so what they do they always publish the shortest of Poe's short stories because they take up less space and cost less to include, and so his shortest short story is the Telltale Heart. Yes. And um, his, his shortest stories tended to be the horror stories because he wanted to go on and get it done and get it out of the way. Sure. So we tend to associate Poe with the horror stories. Uh, but he did have a huge influence on um, the development of horror in the United States. Over 250 attempts have been made uh, to turn Poe into a movie. So uh, over 250 mm. Poe movies um, all of which are just terrible. Right. And the only one who really understood um, Poe from a movie perspective was Alfred Hitchcock. Now, Hitchcock never attempted to film a Poe story, but he was governed by Poe's philosophy of storytelling. Hmm. And uh, Hitchcock said, what I really wanted to do um, was um, what Edgar Allan Poe did. He would tell a totally improbable story, but make you believe it could happen to you on a Tuesday afternoon. Yes. And um, if you'll notice Hitchcock um, in a movie like Psycho doesn't actually show you anything. He suggests it. And no one is killed on the screen in Psycho. Right. People are killed. And you it's suggested, and the uh, audience's imagination fills in the blank. And if you look at Poe, um, uh, though there is death and mayhem in his horror stories, for the most part it happens off stage, like right. a Greek, like a Greek drama. And it's all suggested, and it's all horrible because he doesn't describe it. 
Instead, he leaves it to the reader's imagination. So the person that thinks that Poe is really, really horrible um, <laughs> is saying something about their own imagination. Right. What well, they picture. Yes. It reminds me, one of my favorite ghost story writers is M.R. James. And he does that with the British ghost story. Mm -hmm. You never actually come in direct contact in his, in his writing with the creatures that he presents. You come into contact. I mean, it's just, it's a glimpse here. It's, it's a passing shadow there. You will see afterwards what those creatures do usually if someone is prying too far into things that they should not. But anyway, so that, that's just, it reminds me of, of, of James and, and a lot of the, the best Victorian and Edwardian uh, writer, ghost story writers as well. Yes. And so, so you, you do have the horror stories. He didn't write many of them. He wrote 75 short stories his favorite kind of short story um, comprise a third of his corpus. So one third of his 75 stories are his favorite kind of story, which is a comedy. Hmm. We don't think of Poe as a comedy writer because no. most people don't read all of his works. They just read the anthology in high school. But a third of his uh, short stories are comedies. He, and he loved a romantic comedy. Hmm. Um, his best comedies are the romantic comedies. Some of his comedies are, are um, satires that depend on what was going on in the United States at that day. And, and so they don't have the same lasting flavor as um, uh, his romantic comedies. Um, then after that, um, he loved science fiction. It was a brand new kind of story invented by Mary Shelley in 1817 when she wrote Frankenstein. But Poe wrote, um, goodness, I think about a dozen science fiction stories. And then after that, he, um, he created the mystery story. Hmm. So we wouldn't have um, nighttime television in the United States without Edgar Allan Poe. He, he actually created the mystery story and all the basic plots of the mystery story. So um, those were the sorts of things he was interested in. So we've talked about his, his, the, the different varieties, genres of fiction. You've, you've talked about your interest and your study of C.S. Lewis and of course, uh, Edgar Allan Poe. What is it that made Poe such a good fiction writer? Hmm. Well, <laughs> what makes anyone good at what they do? What makes um, the Wizard of Omaha the best stock picker in, uh, in the United States? What makes um, Einstein such a brilliant physicist? Um, <clears throat> and it is that they are particularly gifted at at their craft and, um, and work at it. And so um, Poe 
was meticulous and he would constantly refine and rewrite and work on um, what he was doing to improve it. He was self-consciously aware that he could do better. Most of us aren't. Most of us are more slipdash and most of us resent criticism. Poe got in trouble uh, in the United States because before he was known as a poet and a, and a short story writer, he was known as a literary critic. And um, the, the stories in, uh, that were being produced in the United States in those days were just dreadful, just sludge. And Poe was wanted better American work. Poe was a big proponent of America. America first. We don't need to be dependent on Europe. We'll create aid our own culture. We don't have to mimic the Europeans. We don't have to ape the English. So he's, he's fiercely um, uh, loyal to the United States, a lover of George Washington, and um, his grandfather <clears throat> was a general in the Revolution and uh, had known Washington and Lafayette. So he's fiercely mm. um, American. So he thought, I appreciate it when somebody shows me what's wrong with my work. So everybody would. <laughs> and so he would just trash um, the, the work of, of other people, including Longfellow. Um, and, and as a result, he made many, many enemies. Um, but it, 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 what's going on there is his own self-criticism, his criticism of others is a reflection of his self-criticism toward improvement. And most of us don't want to do that. That's too painful for most of us. Um, but he was brilliant. I mean, he just just was brilliant. To create an entire new form of storytelling is a matter of, of, of brilliance. Right, yes. And it sounds like his perfectionist tendencies aided him uh, quite a bit as well mm -hmm. in this. So, but he was also, in addition to, to writing, I mean, you, you mentioned his, his literary criticism and fiction. He was also a poet. Mm -hmm. So in your book, you talk about the purpose behind his poetry. And that's one of the things that I'd, I honestly don't see a lot of is at least in in many poets is having a clear and coherent philosophy to what they are doing. And in fact, some of some of the what he wrote in his poetry, I'm not say it's not exactly the same, but it reminds me of some of the later Southern agrarians, mm -hmm. as as far as their their view of, of of poetry needing to communicate beauty. So, so just talk talk to us about. Uh, Ed, go ahead. Okay. Yes. Well, now <clears throat> Poe had strong opinions about um, poetry and about art in general. He said that um, poetry is the rhythmical creation of beauty, the rhythmical creation of beauty. It doesn't necessarily have to rhyme, but it does necessarily have to have 
a beat. And um, he, he speculated that its origins um, uh, were quite primitive and the very idea of drums and the rhythm that we find in drums is associated with the beating of the human heart. Hmm. Um, it was a speculation and we, we can't know for sure, but we do know, uh, we can speculate that um, <coughs> percussions predated other kind of musical instruments so that rhythm was a part of it. And, and Poe regarded uh, music as the highest form of art and that poetry is a, is a secondary but, but is a child of music, um, uh, putting um, words to music and creating uh, words with music. So he was very, he was conscious of making the words fit the meter. And so some poets will make a three-syllable word try to fit into one beat. <laughs> right, right. Or Sound like Scottish they'll, they'll stretch a one-syllable word off to several beats. Yes. And um, it, it doesn't, it's not natural. It's forced. And so Poe said, <clears throat> you need to read a poem with the ear. Hmm. Um, and it's supposed to sound a certain way. Now, all of that disappeared in the 20th century with T.S. Eliot and The Wasteland and, and new ways of, of writing poetry in which poetry became um, disembodied. That is, it lost its meter as well as its rhyme. Right. And now it's just um, Rorschach ideas you know, or phrases. Um, sometimes it's prose rather than poetry. And so in the 20th century, um, poetry is, is like the, the canary in the coal mine where they used to take a, a bird down into the mines because the bird was sensitive to any noxious gases and it would die before the miners did. And they knew if the, if the bird killed over dead, they needed to get out of the mine quickly. Well, that's essentially right. what poetry did for us in the 20th century. It told us that our culture was collapsing and all virtually all the art forms did in the 20th century. But, but Poe was anticipating that and he, he took a real strong line about the importance of attending to um, the meter, the rhythm of, of poetry um, as the rhythmical creation of beauty and he also believed that art in general had as its purpose to create an effect in the audience. Yes. So a painting was supposed to have an effect on the person who looked at it. Music was supposed to have an effect on the people who listened to it. A short story was supposed to have an effect on the person who read it. And so this is part of Poe's success he said from the very first word, you need to be anticipating the ending. What effect are you trying to create? And um, you can see that in the fall of the House of Usher. His very yes. first sentence begins to create the mood that gets the, the climax at the end. And, right. to, uh, to, and so his poetry does the same thing. Of course, his most famous one is The Raven. 
Yes. And The Raven is one of the most perfectly written poems because we're, we're familiar with the idea that um, uh, poetry will often uh, move the word order around of a sentence, the logical word order. And in English, we usually think of uh, the subject, the verb, the direct object. There's a certain order. We can move it around to a certain extent. It becomes more stylistic. But, but in poetry, there's a, a tendency to move phrases around in order to make them fit the rhythm. And to also um, uh, uh, chop words up so that you don't have the 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 full word. We make a contraction out of a word that does not normally have a contraction, and you you stretch words out and squeeze them in. Poe doesn't do that at all in the Raven, except one spot in the very middle. And I've always thought Poe couldn't, re- Poe just could not, not stick a joke into something. <laughs> he would, he would, he just could not leave it alone without having one little joke in his most horrible horror stories and in his poetry. He he just couldn't not tell a joke. And so, um, in the middle of the poem, there's a reference to the window lattice. The window lattice. And then he says, let me see what there at is. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's the one spot at which he changes the word order around and it, it slaps you in the face. It's just so um, discontinuous uh, from what he had been doing. And the remarkable thing is you can read the raven as prose. That is its standard sentence structure. And yet it has the the rhythm all the way through it. And um, rhyming, multiple rhyme schemes, very complicated rhyme scheme. Um, But uh, and it was an immediate sensation. It made him famous. It was reprinted in newspapers and magazines all over the country and continued to appear uh, immediately in, in school anthologies on elocution and um, back when children were taught to, to, to read out loud and to speak and uh, the raven was a standard. So um, highly successful. Literary critics have long condemned it and um, wherever I go in the world and I pull out my credit card to a clerk, they look at the name and they say, oh, like Edgar Allen, uh, quote the Raven, nevermore. Right. And it, it happens all over the English-speaking world, um, which is fascinating to me. One of the, one of the quotes that, that I, I just I had to, to copy out myself from your portion on beauty because there are, I mean, it really grabbed me when it comes to his view on beauty and poetry is that beauty, you say beauty is not neutral brute fact. It causes something to happen within mm-hmm. a person. It's mm-hmm. the kind of universal spiritual experience 
that Rudolph Otto names the numinous. The striking element, of course, is the connect, connection between a work of art and the person who perceives it. It is not like a morsel of food and, and the animal looking for something to eat. The animal seizes the food, but the work of art, beauty, seizes the audience. Yes. It's what uh, C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The Abolition of Man, yes. refers to as the sublime. Yes. That is, it actually elicits from the viewer a response. And it's why people are struck by awe by a sunset or a waterfall or a mountain view. They are, they are, uh, that what they're looking at is sublime. It is drawing from them a response. That's what Poe was concerned with. It's what C.S. Lewis was concerned with. Yes. Those, those parallels are, are amazing between those two men. And, and, uh, what they both had in common, um, their mothers died when they were, uh, mm. children. Poe was just two when his parents died. Uh, Lewis was nine when his mother died. Lewis tells us that that was the beginning of his atheism. And what they were both asking is a question common to humans at all places and all times. If there's a good, all-powerful, loving God, then why did he let this bad thing happen to my mother? It's called the problem of suffering, the problem of evil, the problem of pain. Both of them were asking that question. And so you have in Poe, those episodes of, of people doing terrible things to one another. And in Poe, you find natural disasters like the, um, the maelstrom, the whirlpool that drags people down, or uh, the earthquake in um, uh, the fall of the House of Usher, or the pandemic in King Past and Mask of the Red Death, or the... Um, uh, uh, was it an asteroid or was it a um, comet that strikes the earth and destroys all life on it? Um, uh, so he, he has natural disaster as well as uh, human evil. And everybody asks that question. But what where Poe and Lewis went beyond, they asked the rest of the questions. Why is there beauty? Why is there love? Hmm. Why is there a sense of right and wrong or uh, justice? And finally, why is there something rather than nothing? And so they were asking those deep, profound questions. You know, the in the atheist corner, you can ask, well, why, if God's uh, there, why does he let bad things happen? And some people, most people just leave it at that. Right. They went on and asked the harder questions. Well, if there's only brute matter, how do you explain values? Which is C.S. Lewis's argument for the existence of God in mere Christianity. Right. And that's what Poe was doing with his poetry. Um, uh, the matter of uh, right and wrong, it's what he was doing when he created the mystery story. Because here's the problem with the mystery story. And remember, Poe doesn't graphically describe the horror in the horror story, but he does. But also in the mystery story, he requires that the audience bring to the story the sense of right and wrong. Yes, some things are wrong, 
And the mystery story only works when the, when the audience brings that um, sense to the story. And the audience has to care. They have to care who did it. They have to care about the truth. They have to care that the innocent person be set free and the evildoer caught and punished. They have to care that society be protected from more wrongdoing. They have to care about the truth. And all of these are values. They are not material brute matter. In a universe of brute matter, where there's just the physical, there is no right and wrong. There's just what is. Nothing is beautiful or ugly. It, It just is. And so both Poe and Lewis were struck by these ideas, and it led both of them to theism. Hmm. And um, Lewis lived long enough to become a, a Christian um, a, a year or so after. Uh, it would have been a, a year and about 10 months after he believed in God. Now, now Poe wrote Eureka in 1848. In August of 1849, he went forward in a Sons of Temperance revival meeting. Yes. Now, we don't know exactly what happened. We do know about the Sons of Temperance. We do know about those um, kind of public meetings they had. It's the uh, precursor to Alcoholics Anonymous, in which you part of the cure is acknowledging um, a, an ultimate being, a higher being. Um, we don't know what content, religious content, there was to it. But we do know that, but, that by... 1848 with Eureka, Poe's conclusion about all his scientific observations was, therefore, God exists. God is the one who created the universe. God is the one who who judges it in the end. Um, so the but but Poe died in the fall of eight, 1849. He did not write anything um, after he went forward in the Sons of Temperance revival meeting. He died about six weeks later. Hmm. Uh, Lewis, uh, who became a Christian in um, late September, early October of um, 1931, would live for um, 32 more years and do all of his important work after he became a Christian. So you've got that those differences between the right. two men. And, and Lewis had a circle of friends mm-hmm. that were consistently pointing him and challenging him in Trinitarian Orthodox Christianity. Exactly. Whereas we don't, at least from what I've seen, you know, there was not a circle of solid Christian friends that Edgar Allan Poe had no so of course you know with his desire to start it it, that the literary the the american literary magazine there was possibilities there but again in god's providence that that did not happen so one of the one of the themes in some of his writing though again it's often overlooked because of our fascination with mystery with and even horror is his love of nature Mm -hmm. and and how that 
that with displays beauty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, so, so talk about his, his love of nature and how that directs us towards the, the sublime, towards the beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, um, he, he did love nature. Um, he, uh, when he was a boy, uh, his foster father took him to London for five years um, and there he bought for him a brass telescope to, to view the stars. <clears throat> and um, the person he studied with during those years, the Reverend Dr. John Bransby, was a Cambridge graduate, a classic scholar who was also interested in astronomy. So we'll see a lifelong love Poe had of the heavens. Psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And so the sublime was hitting Poe at every level, at the cosmic level with the heavens, but also when he was at um, uh, the University of Virginia, he, um, as, a, as a late teenager, um, he would take long walks. And by long walks, I mean 10 and 15 miles. And they're in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Hmm. And if you've never seen the Blue Ridge Mountains, they are sublime. Yes. They yes. Uh, and and every season uh, right now the um, rhododendron are beginning to bloom and the wild azaleas and all the wildflowers. So he had that, but in the fall they're this covered with color, and um, uh, and that the, it, it those mountains are covered with little streams and waterfalls and uh, so. It, he would had a lifelong love of these long walks in the country. Uh, the same as C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, at the same time in his life, developed this love of taking 10-mile walks because he, he just had this deep love of, of nature. And so um, it was having an effect on him. That would wind up having an effect on, on how both of them wrote and what they wrote about. Um, So it's that case of experiencing the sublime. They knew it wasn't a psychological projection out of themselves onto nature. Rather, um, it was an effect on them by nature, which is more than a physical effect. It's a spiritual effect. And that there's something behind the nature, the idea that, that God is, there's a creator, there's an artist, there's an artist behind the nature. Poe would say um, in, in a lengthy essay on American drama, how bad it was, he said, <laughs> it, it, the plots are just terrible. And then he discussed nature and, and the mutual dependency and interaction of, of nature, one thing upon another. And he said, Nature, the universe, the universe is a plot of God. The universe is the perfect plot. The universe is a plot of God. And um, he wrote that in, I think, 1844, five years before he died. So he was he was working on this understanding of, of God all through the 1840s. Hmm. Um but it, it, it definitely that idea that the reason 
the universe is sublime is because it is a work of art and art creates an effect in the viewer. And therefore there must be an artist. If you have a work of art that creates an effect in the viewer, there must be an artist who created with the intention of causing an effect. That's, that would be the logic of the argument. And you'd find um, C.S. Lewis and Dorothy L. Sayers, by the way, also making that, that strong argument. Sayers did it in the mind of the maker. The idea that God is an artist. Well, and his view that, I mean, he, he believed in truth, but in, in one, uh, one of his essays, uh, I think there was an essay, and I don't have it listed whether it's an essay or, or a series of essays called The Poetic Principle. Yes. He said that, that truth is not enough to draw people, but beauty must also accompany it. That is a powerful argument that, that, that I would say many in the church right now still miss, especially you know those of us who are on the, the, the strong evangelical side. We think if we just hit the world with truth, they're going to love us for it. And truth is great. But as a professor of faith and culture, uh, and, and having written about this, I mean, you, you obviously have an appreciation for the need for beauty to accompany truth. And that's something that, that Poe talks about as well. Well, yes, and uh, you have to decide, well, now, who invented beauty in the first place? I think it was God. Right. God invented beauty. Um, we didn't. Um, it's, uh, and, and here's the thing about truth. Whereas God is the author of truth, Satan is the corrupter of truth. And you'll recall that Satan in the Bible Almost always, if not always, I'm trying to think of an exception, but all, all the examples I can think of, Satan comes to us quoting scripture, which is true. But you take it out of context and you wrongly divide the word of truth. And so uh, truth can be more difficult to receive than beauty, which is immediate, uh, unfiltered and um, has a direct connection. So it, it, it does work differently than truth, but God gave us both. Yes, and as a culture declines, you can see that displayed in the degradation of beauty in that culture. It, yes, in... Um, in his science fiction novel, Paralandra, C.S. Lewis has the demonic figure in that story destroying beautiful things, like these little animals, these little yes. creatures that are so beautiful. It's like pulling the wings off a butterfly just for the malice of, of hurting. And um, the degradation of beauty um, just as as Satan can twist the truth, there's our culture has a tendency to degrade um, beauty, um, but in its immediate form, it is it's a gift from God. Yes, 
And so there's any number of things that we could talk about, and I know our, our time's getting short. So we, you have a chapter on, well, I don't remember what the name was. I nicknamed it the four loves of Edgar Allan Poe, you know, <laughs> riffing off of C.S. Lewis's view about love. But he does talk about love in his in his works. And, you know, you talk about him as a as a mystery writer as well. But as he, you know, in, in his work, Eureka, what is, I mean, it's, it, it's, I've taken a brief look at it and, and I will confess, I said, I want to understand this, but I'm going to have to devote more time mm-hmm. to, to, to this because it's not light reading. No. But his, his general point in this essay is from, from what I've read in, in your book, it's an emphasis of, of his that God, as you said, does exist as displayed in natural revelation. Is that a, 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 a fair summary? Or yes, in in many ways, it's an it's an argument from the existence of God from uh, in nature as it exists that um, it is a plot carefully contrived and all the pieces have to fit together perfectly for it to exist at all. Um, And that would be uh, what we now call chaos theory. Um, The odd thing about chaos theory is it's (laughs) anti-chaos. It's more about order. Um, um, But all the different pieces of the... what, what physicists now call the theory of everything, how does all the different aspects of nature fit together um, would be a theory of everything. And, and, and science is still try, struggling to fit all the different pieces because different scientific theories don't quite fit together. And so they have to be modified. And that's what Poe was doing all of them at the same time. Hmm. Um, but the idea of an expanding universe that's going to come to an end was considered ludicrous in Poe's day because the science of the day was based on Aristotle's view that the universe is eternal in duration. It has always existed and always will exist. And, um, um, and, uh, infinite in size it goes on and on and ever does has no limits <clears throat> to it, and uh, the only contradiction from that would would be from the Bible, but people kept the Bible on Sunday and did science the rest of the week, and Poe was saying, no, no, Bible's right on this one. The universe had a beginning and it's going to have an end, and that's essentially the the Big Bang theory, uh, but with scientific a scientific basis. Um, and so why did he do it? What is the purpose of um, the creation of the universe if you're going to bring it to an end? And bringing it to an end is part of the plan. And so he's thinking through all of these things. He hasn't reached, resolved all the, the theological issues. He's not a Christian at the end of, of um, Eureka. 
He believes there's a God, but it's a a vague sort of a God, the same sort of a God C.S. Lewis believed in before he became a Christian. Um, He's not one that meddles in your affairs, (laughs) you know, and um, maybe he's everywhere. Well, the Holy Spirit is everywhere. So he hadn't, he didn't have it all sorted out. Right, right. Um, But he knew that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Yes. That part he had. Well, this is really, I mean, uh, I hesitate to use a cliche, mind blowing, but 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 much of it is that, that that a man would would propose things that that didn't that were not known for a long time, which speaks to his own brilliance. But I I want to end the, the, with the last question on a different note. You've referenced C.S. Lewis several times. The way I actually came to 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 discover you was uh, a footnote to a discovery you made about C.S. Lewis as a, as a spy, I mean, working for the British <laughs> Secret Service. So, so, so as we close last question, could you just tell us that story and how well, you discovered that? Cause this is not a small thing. Yeah. Lewis was not actually a spy. Uh, this was an article I wrote for Christianity today. And um, uh, authors write the articles, but editors write the headlines. Right. And so they put the headline, C.S. Lewis was a spy. Yes. <laughs> he wasn't. Um, but during World War II, uh, what we now call MI5, the, uh, the Secret Intelligence Service, what James Bond worked for, um, was... Um, involved in a lot of different things. One thing they set up was the uh, Joint Broadcasting Committee, whose responsibility was to broadcast to the uh, nations under captivity by Hitler. Well, Britain, the same day Germany invaded Holland, Britain invaded Iceland. We don't usually think of that or remember it, but the British, that Germany had already taken over Denmark, Iceland so many miles away from Denmark, was part of the Danish Empire. Iceland and Greenland, these frozen northern uh, outposts of civilization, were part of the Danish Empire. And um, once Denmark was controlled by Germany, then soon the Germans would go to Iceland and, and take it over and use it as a naval base and an air base halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, which would uh, make uh, the uh, convoys for the British just totally impossible. The, the war would be over. So Britain invaded, and the British wanted to, um, you know, uh, try to do something to make the Icelanders not resentful of having been invaded and conquered by the English and say, we're really not your enemies, we're your friends. Um, and so one thing they did, they asked C.S. Lewis, to broadcast um, uh, a a talk to the people of Iceland. And um, uh, he he, um, had a broadcast that was recorded on uh, 78 RPM records, two discs, four sides. um, And the title of it was um, The Norse Spirit in English Literature. 
It was never published, never transcribed, uh, never known by any C.S. Lewis scholars. Um, I found it on eBay, um, a, an old bookshop in Reykjavik, Iceland, had acquired it along with, um, you know, some, some other things and just put it for sale on eBay. And I said, there's no, no broadcast by C.S. Lewis about the Norse spirit in English literature, but I thought it was worth the $10 to find out what on earth is that? And sure enough, it's the first broadcast Lewis made. It was before his radio broadcast that became uh, mere Christianity. And he begins by saying he's doing this because he owes a debt to the Norse people because um, his own uh, imagination was sparked by uh, the uh, Norse mythology when he was a boy. And uh, he, he gives testimony to that. And that's what really was one of the first steps toward his conversion. Um, mm. But anyway, it was it was fascinating to uh, hit upon a discovery like that. Yes. So everyone keep an eye out on eBay for anything that might show up from uh, Iceland. Uh, right. Regarding that, you never know. You never know. So, well, Dr. Poe, thank you so much for taking time uh, today. It has been in, so interesting, and it's helpful as we read Edgar Allan Poe to not just see him as an interesting slash weird writer, but, but to see him as someone who is on a path, who's an excellent writer, but also one who is on a path. And, and hopefully by God's grace, we can uh, at least know that, that, that there's, there was opportunity for him. We don't know what happened in those last few weeks, but that there was opportunity. So Thank you again for taking time to talk. It's been wonderful. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. The Good Life Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy one of our other podcasts, Got a Minute, featuring Larson Hicks and Rich Luss. Theology, philosophy, economics, politics, and more for normal people.